This is Dancing with Change. I'm Bryden Davidson. This is a podcast about systemic change. We seek to understand the system that we're in, visions of what a different system could look like, and how we as individuals, communities, and societies can be part of the transition from one to the other. Hello and welcome. In today's episode, I will be talking with Peter McFadden. Peter is the former mayor of the town of Froome, and he was part of the movement of independence, or a group called Independence for Froome, which won the elections there in 2011, based on a promise of a radically different sort of politics. In this episode, we talk about what it means to practice this different kind of politics in which people are listening to each other and in which they are listening to the people. In this episode, I think we're finally coming back down to uh, the practical level of systems change, which I really love. So we're talking really about how we can change our local politics and like what has been done to change local politics. And so there's really some good advice for anyone thinking about getting involved and trying to create change in this way. I think that this is a really inspiring story and it will hopefully give you some energy and inspiration to get involved yourself. So I think that's all I'm going to say for now. But I'll be back at the end to recap and offer some reflections on the episode. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. I'm here with Peter McFadden. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about flat pack democracy. So I was just thinking to start us off, if you wouldn't mind to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your background as as a troublemaker. (laughs) What a fine thing to be at this age. Thanks. Um, So, yeah, um, I'm talking to you from Froome in Somerset in England. And um, I guess in the context of this conversation, I mean, my my uh, the bit of background where we're talking about is is relatively recent politics in in Froome and my troublemaking with that. But I came to it. as an, a, a lifetime environmentalist, I guess, of one kind or another. My dad was a professor of ecology, and I was born into all things green and gorgeous in that way, and campaigning. Um, and um, we, Annabelle and I, my wife and I, have lived in Froome for 35 years now. And at, fairly early on in that process, I was involved in starting the um, transition town movement in Froome. And that led me into going to the town council and talking to them and realizing that something needed to be done, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. But I guess the background to me in terms of, uh, uh, you know, this conversation is as a, a, um, a lifelong liberal, in I would say the best sense, um, a pacifist, uh, a, um, a sort of not very well attending Quaker. I went to a Quaker school, which was massively important in, in, in what came next, uh, I guess. Um, in terms of how it set me up for life, and and as I say, a long term, a long life of um, of recycling, reusing, making things out of stuff that's lying around, and mending things. That do 
Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what, what's the connection between uh, the Quakers and the outlook that you take from that because I, I don't know a lot about the Quakers. Okay, so so Quakers, the the core of Quakerism was actually troublemaking. They um they refused to take part in many of the more extreme bits of religion. They, Quakers are Christian, but they're they're also um, hardcore pacifists. The original Quakers, who I think were 1600s, wore brown. They didn't, uh, again, they, they were sort of quite um, frugal in everything that they did. Um, uh, the wearing brown is, sounds irrelevant, doesn't it? But it was sort of, uh, um, that was a sort of symbol of their simplicity, of, of, you know, of not, not taking part in, in a capitalist way of life, really. Um, and, and I guess it was that that influenced me as much as most things at school. Although my school also had children from every religion on the planet, I think, and, and countries from whatever. It's a public school. And I, but I didn't suffer from the need to recover from my public school. I, I loved it. It was, it was fantastic. But it gave me a real sense of, um, I don't know, us being one humanity, I suppose, uh, uh, because I was my friends and colleagues there were, were all, as I say, from, from all over the world and from different backgrounds and different religions. Mm. Yeah, okay, that's uh, it's an interesting mix to, uh, or an interesting place to come out of, I think, mm. um, to have that diversity. But I guess, yeah, one of the, the main things we'll be talking about today. Um, so you were part of a group of independents that took over the local council in Froome uh, in 2014. And so I was wondering if you could just first by telling us yeah, a little bit about uh, the town of Froome and why you felt the need to get involved in the politics. Sure. So Froome is a market town in rural Somerset, but it's 30,000 people. So it's a larger town, one of the largest towns um, in, in, in the west of, of Britain, I suppose. Oh, but west of England, there are much larger, sorry, there are much larger places like Bristol and Bath, but in the, rurally, it's quite a, quite a large town. Like many market towns, and um, market and coastal towns have suffered a lot about particularly 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, when fishing industries were decimated and markets often moved out of towns, as happened in Froome. So the, the cattle market used to happen every week in the middle of Froome. That brought a lot of farmers in, brought, and they, they came with their, their wives, they spent money, they did stuff, they uh, went to the bank and so on. And then the market moved out because larger lorries and, uh, and so on were necessary. And that, took, that drained a huge quantity of, of uh, activity, really, I guess, but also uh, income. And at that, town, the t- at that point, the town collapsed. That was on the back of all the larger factories having closed. So, so Froome was in quite a depressed state when we came to it. Um, in many ways, which meant that it was a cheap place to come and live, which is why a, a slowly growing number of people came who were artists or um, others who perhaps couldn't afford to, well, who couldn't afford to live in Bath and Bristol. So it was an interesting time to arrive um, in, in many ways. Um, and politically, like most um, towns and parishes in Britain, uh, no, not not most, many of the larger ones are political in the sense that people are elected with national political parties so so people would stand as Labour, Tory, Lib Dem or now perhaps more Green um, or as well Green. Coming, I came to this through the transition movement as I say I went to the town council and said what are you doing about fundamental green issues like climate change and peak oil and so on and the answer was we run the park and it was quite clear that the, there was a, a well I could only describe kindly as a significant lack of ambition 
um, they were quite happy just running the park. Um, and I was moaning about that in a pub with a couple of others who had other things to moan about. And we thought, why not stir this up a bit and just raise some of the issues that we felt that a town council could be addressing, because a council can if it wants to. And before we knew what had happened, we found ourselves with 17 candidates for 17 seats, and we won 10 of them. So we had a majority right from day one, which enabled us to make some fairly radical changes, um, which we did, mainly because we were people who'd never been councillors before. The vast majority of, of councillors at this level in Britain are old men. I mean, I am an old man now, so I can kind of say that without any um, stigma or whatever. But, um, but you know, that's sadly, it, uh, you know, it, they tend to, the councillors tend to be older men or old men who've been there for a very long time. There are, of course, exceptions to that, but not many. So just interesting, one of the thoughts that, that prompted for me um, as you're talking about the makeup of room so you've got i guess uh people who have probably been living there for a very long time and you have stayed through the you would say like the economic collapse and then you've got uh you know sort of people coming i'm guessing from yeah larger cities uh looking for some more space or something that's a little bit cheaper it makes me think like was there a lot of tension it's not like a, you know a bit like gentrification in a way um was there much tension with the people, like the new people moving in and uh, the residents who have been there for longer? Uh, and so when you're talking about like the independents who are running, is it mostly these newcomers or was there also buy-in from the people who've been living there for uh, quite some time? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Uh, and it's, it's an important one for Froome. I think initially, uh, so when we got involved in 2010. I think people were just glad to see anybody come along or, or people be involved. And that was generally true of anything in, in Froome, whether, um, you know, you became a school governor or, a um, you know, a, a trustee of a, a, a local charity or anything. People were just delighted that, that anyone wanted to, to do stuff. Um, and we went to great lengths at the beginning to ensure that we did have people who were um, old Froome, if you like, and, and had been here forever. And, and the, um, Nick White, who became the first mayor, was very much um, one of those people. Um, and, and But we also had others and have done all the way through Independence for Froome's existence. But you, you touch on an important point. It's, it's really come home actually more recently with house prices, I think, because house prices combined with... Um, the pandemic and a, a very significant number of people moving from London who've realised that they can uh, still get back to from or, or just go back to London or or they don't need to they can work from home and so you can swap your small flat in in London for um, for a large house in Froome and so now there is a, a, a very significant tension because actually younger people you can't live here if you're a child of someone you know if you've been brought up here and you want to remain in town. You want to either buy or rent a house. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to find anywhere. But you've also very probably been priced out of the market. Um, so that brings. I think it's that. It's housing which has particularly brought it brought the gentrification to a head. I would say that Old Froome kind of tolerated things that were new initially, or well, it's not tolerate. I mean, you know, many people might join in, but they there are bits of Froome which, yeah, they, there are shops which just sell things which are expensive and and are, are aimed at people who have um, a high disposable income and so for old Froome they'd just be you know what's the point of that but 
I think people didn't mind that. It brought jobs, it brought money, you know, but it has now brought a significant problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting tension. I guess you see it playing out in uh, a lot of different places, but um, it's good to, I mean, that you're aware of it. And I'd like to touch maybe a little bit more on it later, but if we have time. <laughs> but I think you sort of just uh, mentioned then, uh, just before, so you had a group of 17 people who ran for seats in the council and you got 10. How how did you, as a group of independents, just you know, how do you think you were just able to win a majority without really having any experience uh, beforehand? Yeah, so some of what we were offering was just change. I mean, was change from a system which was so clearly kind of stale and ineffective. Um, we were lucky in that there was a, a, um, a meeting run by the town council, which was a, a lot of the public went to, or a significant number of people went to, which they ran very badly indeed, in the sense that they were quite traditional councillors actually they they were very much there as a row of councillors the public were sat you know facing them um the public were expected to shut up until they were asked to speak that kind of thing and it, it became quite chaotic um uh, with the councillors becoming very rude to the public so a lot of people left that meeting going who oh blimey what was all that about who were these people so there was a sort of uh, an element of of uh, of that which was helpful to us but we ran a very upbeat campaign, which was very different. Um, um, lots of, of posters that were were challenging to people, I suppose, in some ways. But also, it's hard to remember, but sort of Facebook and things that, that weren't so much in the public domain then, uh, certainly not politically. So none of, the, none of the political parties used social media at all. And we did. And we made um, some short films and so on. So essentially what we did was we attracted a lot more voters 75 percent more people voted the whole thing had sort of ground down into apathy um and what we did largely was um get people to register to vote and then to vote so a lot more people as i say voted um and that's what what got us in definitely in that first time i think possibly people just thought it'd be fun um to be honest and 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 different and and hadn't really thought it through if they had thought it through they might not have voted for us to be honest because we were then um we did change things fairly rapidly which i think certainly older people might have been frightened of um had they known what was coming yeah so i guess you were coming into this environment that was already quite ripe for change uh and you were using or getting ahead on some of these campaigning uh getting getting the word out there which hadn't really been uh, before so things like facebook now, one of the things I find interesting about what just sort of glossed over a little bit um, is the word group of independents. It feels like it's a little bit of a contradiction. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, if you're a group of independents, wouldn't you just be a party? So, yeah, what was what makes you independents and also what holds you together or held you together as a group? Yeah. Another very good question, um, Brian, because that was very much one of the things that the opposition raised in letters to the newspaper basically saying this is a secret party don't trust them um the answer is that we tried to do well not tried to do we did do something which i think was very novel and is possibly the most interesting thing about independence for free uh, the, the the word independence is, is slightly confusing because what we what we um were being was independent of the political party system but it's a bit beyond that. What we were essentially doing was act, acting as individuals. We were saying, look, we will be a group of individuals. 
who can make our own decisions, um, uh, you know, based on whatever we want. Um, but but we will help be held together by an ethos, by what we called our ways of working. We said this is how we will behave together. So the only thing you needed to sign up to as a as a candidate um, was these ways of working. And that incidentally is the same now. We're now about to enter um, three more. The, 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 there's going to be a third election if, um, after that initial one, if you see what I mean. So the fourth time that Independence for Froome have stood is in May this year. And they've just had a selection process and the 17 il- il- selected people to stand as candidates. They've signed up to these ways of working. And they're, in my view, they're kind of common sense. They're very feminine um, in, in, in terms of politics. They involve a lot of, um, they're basically saying, I'll listen to what you have to say. I think the, the whole way that our, confront, our, our um, politics is based at the moment is around confrontation. It's, it's you know, you, it, so you don't listen. You're just waiting to get your your speech in, your um, flurry of activity in. You haven't listened at all to what the other person has been um, been offering. What we were saying is, we will genuinely listen. We will change our minds. We'll be happy to make mis- happy to make mistakes. It's perhaps not quite right, but you know, we'll make mistakes and then learn from them. All the things which I think a well functioning family or society does, but our politics doesn't, or most people's politics doesn't. Um, you know, I think our political system is completely broken. And what we were trying to do is to say there's a better way of doing this so that we as a group would operate um, in that way and 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 be genuinely treat each other well. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting to think. I guess like really all you're promising is to reform the way in which you work and not necessarily particular uh, particular policies. It seems like a really interesting way of, I guess, bottom up trying to reform the political system. You know, instead of asking politicians to to talk nicer with each other and listen, to have that agreement that you'll all to vote in people who will abide by like a different set of rules or uh, a different set of not necessarily ethics, but um, yeah, a different set of values. Yeah, and you can hold people to them later. So when they if they misbehave either publicly or you know privately in that uh, as a, you know when we're meeting as a group or in meetings you know council meetings or whatever you can kind of remind people of what they said in that way. It, yeah, because although it was the agreement is that that's how we'd work together the inference is that it's also how we would work with the people and that's the sort of second bit of it the other bit that we said is that we will consult and engage properly so we were saying look we don't we don't necessarily know anything about um, uh, issues, and 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 we can't have a manifesto. Going back to what you were just saying, we can't put forward a series of policies because we haven't met with each other, we haven't been elected, we haven't met as a group. Um, so how can we have a policy on whether to support the bicycle route or not? Because we don't know, we don't know the facts, we don't know the figures, we don't know the end. So we can't, we can't have policy. We can only have this way of working. Um, but what we can do is say that we, once elected, we will uh, really properly work with the people who, incidentally, have the expertise. They have, you know, all sorts of experience and uh, and skills and so on that we don't have. Um, so again, to me, that just makes that's a much more sensible way to way of doing things, rather than being elected and then suddenly being uh, expected to make a decision on something which, frankly, you know nothing about. Um, why not bring in people who actually know something? 
Yeah, like there's a real willingness to admit when you don't know something and it's not uh, like you have to know all the answers, but you're Correct. able to ask the, the greater pool of people to help you solve these questions. So I'm curious, you were saying that the way that politics works at the moment is uh, very confrontational. I think what you described before with the council meeting in the past where you've got the councillors on one side and the assembly on the other, uh, it sounds quite confrontational even in the way it's arranged. Um, so what were some of the things that you did with the council when you know, the independents came in? How did you uh, change it to make it less confrontational and to, to bring these values that you ran on into, into life? So one of the things that I think, um, you know, is definitely the most important that we did was to massively um, informalize. Can you do that? I mean, make the <laughs> make the meetings and the whole in uh, the whole approach to the public less formal. So prior to us, and this is currently still the case in most councils, um, you have a, a, a row of councillors who, as I say, are likely to be men. They're likely to be dressed in their best, if not their suits, and some in some cases dressed in the whole business of gowns and chains and so on. And they will face the public. Um, who sit cowering often at a lower height um, and the public are allowed to speak uh, that you have to book in if you want to speak <clears throat> you can only speak at the beginning of the meeting you can only speak for two or three minutes depending on which council it is and the councillors don't have to respond at all they don't have to say anything to what you have you know they, they they don't even have to thank you and in many cases they don't so this is kind of set up to, to be incredibly rude incredibly condescending and do exactly the opposite of what I was saying in terms of drawing out the best of people. So unsurprisingly, very few people go to council meetings. Why would you go um, you know, to such a thing? Um, so we removed all that and basically ran the thing as a room uh, of people with the councillors dotted around amongst the, the people. Um, you had a card that you held up with your name on when you needed to vote. But I remember early on when we'd done this, <clears throat> somebody on the table I was sitting um, turning to me after I voted and said, oh, I didn't know you were a councillor, which is kind of perfect. You know, that's exactly what I wanted. You know, we'd been sitting there for half an hour. We'd been talking about issues together on tables or listening to people. You know, we are, after all, just citizens of a small town. It's a voluntary role. Fairly soon, you know, you go back to uh, to being a, a, an ordinary citizen. So what's with all this power and, and uh, the dressing up and the you know, the, the behavior of councils and councillors in that way, because it's so destructive, I think. Um, so, I mean, in many ways, um, and that's the main thing, you know, that we did was take that out, wore what you were wearing to go to meetings, sat with each other. And of course, councils, you know, at, at a certain point, we had to make decisions, we had to vote, we had to decide how budgets were going to be set up and how money was spent. But we could do that, having built a trust, or more of a trust, at least, with the people, um, you know, with a wider group of people. And 60, 70 people would come to meetings instead of possibly two or three. Mm. That's um, that's really great. I, I like the idea of people not even realizing that you're a councillor. I was just, that was making me think a little bit about the way, well, I mean, the role of, uh, you know, politicians, like in local politics and the way that you're talking about uh, how politicians before you were taking over, I guess like there's almost this role of like, we are here, we don't have to listen to you uh, because we are in this position of power. And I guess really, if you, you know, thinking about like what you would like the role of politicians to be, it should be 
uh, well, I mean, in a way you say representatives, but I guess, you know, there's a sense of like, okay, hush down, we're representing you. Like we, we know what's best for you. And I feel like you're taking it to more of a place where it, you can continually listen to uh, what people are wanting. And it's not just about being elected and then you make the decisions, but it's more of a continual process of feedback. And I'm curious with these uh, with these meetings with the increased turnout. Um, going back to the question we had before about old firm and uh, new firm, did you feel like there was a, a sort of what kind of balance do you think that was? Was it mostly new people, old people, a big mix? Um, we certainly uh, okay. So I would say certainly initially it was probably more new. But not by any means all, because people come to council meetings because they're interested in an issue. So actually, you know, I think one of the roles that we played probably was was mixing and muddling um, people who wouldn't otherwise meet um, for exactly that reason. Because if you care about, I don't know, a planning application for a building on a, a, that's that's you know going to be taken down or something, then you'll come whether you're old or new, um, because and you have that in interest. And indeed, you you then may well share share a view and you know after you've been to the meeting go off and talk about it in the pub together and you don't so you don't notice the old and new bit so i think yeah it worked well in that way but we did something else which worked better uh, actually which was that we realized that um there were areas of strategy where we as a group really knew nothing so or, or either knew nothing or we really wanted to pull in views from uh, the wider community um, sports a good example where it just happened that none of us were particularly into um, into sporting activities in Froome but people came to us quite regularly saying there's not enough um, you know services for, for whatever they were footballers badminton players so you know there's not enough facilities in the town or there's not enough um, sharing of facilities and, not, and so on and so what we did was we said okay you you the people can define the strategy tell us tell us what's needed because we don't know so we held one of a, a number of panels which we ran. We ran about seven or eight panels on areas of strategy. And what that meant was that we said, OK, we'll have three meetings. They'll be quite short. They'll be well facilitated. So we'll have a meeting in the football club, the rugby club and the cricket club. So three different venues, all of which have bars, incidentally, which help. You can't have a bar in a, you can't have a bar in a council meeting. Um, you know, and um, as I say, they'll be they'll be just for two hours. Um, they'll be well facilitated. Councillors may be may be there, but they may not. I mean, you know, they don't. They're not running it. So we brought in people to facilitate the meetings. Um, and as councillors, we were there as addressed. You know, not in any way that you'd be recognisable. Not to hide, but but because we wanted to be just there as, as people um, to to you know as an ordinary person. Um, and those meetings, the first one was really about people getting to know each other. The second one was beginning to was putting together a strategy of, of so here's the main things we want to achieve, and then the sort of how at the end. So so how could that be done? Um, and those meetings, as I say, they were about a number of different issues. But the sports ones got up to a hundred people at each meeting, um, who sat around tables, who worked together. Um, so people who would never normally meet too. There was, and one of the again, one of the best things were things like the two rival football clubs coming together, you know, sitting at one table and chatting about things that want to happen for football, not their, you know, not their confrontational bit as rival football clubs. Um, and also things coming out of it like, um, well, yeah, well, why don't you use our um, changing facilities on a Thursday? Because we only practice on a Wednesday and a Tuesday or whatever, you know. Um, so things that came out of that, which were kind of common sense 
that had no venue or no place for that to happen otherwise. So the thought slot made a, you know, prepared, a, created a strategy, which we were basically able to completely adopt as a council. So obviously, again, the council needed to make the decision. We needed to say, this is going to become our strategy. We're going to put money into it and so on. So the people can't make that decision because you're spending taxpayers' money. But we could do it because they had, they'd recognised the limitations. See what I mean? So that People said to us, this won't work because everyone will tell you they want a ski slope and a, um, you know, a bowling alley <laughs> and all sorts of stuff that's impossible. They'll just dream. But I think my theory, or well, certainly my experience as a councillor, was that if you give people respect and responsibility, they live up to it. And so what came out of it was things that could be done. Now, sometimes we had to say, OK, let's we'll work with well, the example I can think of. We'll work with the football club to apply to Sports Britain, Sports England, I think, um, to get some funding. So we will help you to fundraise to make this happen. So quite often we couldn't say, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. Very often it was, um, you know, we will create the, the, um, the way in which this will be achieved. But we did that, as I say, for a number of, of different things. Um, and, uh, and again, the, 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 the people coming to those meetings were a real mixture because what they had in common was a particular sport. So that could be the new person who'd come to Froome who loved running or the footballer, you know, the family who'd run the football club forever. It didn't make any difference because what they had in common was uh, was the sports bit. And so you've got brilliant um, exchanges, which I like to think have lasted ever since. Long answer to a question, but I think it's those, it's those making things happen in those kind of ways. And also we went to those people's place. If we'd said to people, we're going to have a meeting on sports strategy, you know, on Tuesdays at the town hall, you know, turn, most people wouldn't, certainly the vast majority of those people would never have come, and certainly not the old school, to whom the town council and the town hall is just an anathema, really, in the sense of, you know, it's a place full of powerful people. Why would you go there? Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, like the, the choice of space. And also to think about sports as something which is really quite uh, maybe intersectional in terms of... Uh, people's political identity or you know sort of values and also really something which is part of the fabric of the urban commons it just makes me think that's like a really unexpected sort of point to see people Mm. come together and create that connection and it was also making me think a little bit as someone you know from the transition town movement i guess you're interested in localism and it's interesting to (laughs) to think about you're, when you're thinking about Pico and all these other sort of things, I guess you're not usually thinking about local sports clubs, but if that's something which makes people want to stay in the town and feel like it's a great place, I suppose that really contributes to uh, localism. Um, so the sports club is an interesting example, but what other kinds of changes did you see uh, come into the town as a result of this change in process? So some of the early ones were... What we tried to do was to create an atmosphere or create a, a, um, an, a, a response to requests and to ideas, which was instinctively yes rather than no. Because I think particularly at this level of local government, um, the instinctive answer tends to be no. Because often in a sense it is, because you haven't got the resources at the moment. You haven't got the, the control over that issue um, or whatever it might be. But, but you can get those, if you see what I mean. So what we were trying to do was to to get to a place where 
um, when people came, for example, and this is a good uh, early example of, of something, um, when the um, uh, the allotment association came and said, "Look, we haven't got an, uh, a you know, we've got a waiting list of ten years for allotments," um, and you know, the, the town council at that point ran the allotments, so so people came and paid their money to the um, to the uh, to the town council to, to rent an allotment. So we said to the allotment association, "Why don't we? What we'll do is look, you take over running the thing." Um, so we'll get that off our back and in return we'll buy a field so we'll buy a field get 100 allotments um wipe out the uh, the um uh, waiting list in one fell stroke uh you know so it was which all of which happened so it was things like that where you're a part it's a combination of sort of empowering a chunk of the community um by giving them the running of the organization but also at the same time um uh, yeah i mean putting uh, resources into something um, which people I don't think realised you could do. That was a mixture of a, of a philanthropic gift and council money that bought um, bought a field. Um, and there's another one a bit like that where the answer had been no previously. There was a, a, a man who I saw yesterday, actually, um, who had um, wanted to run a large market in, in the middle of room and to close some of the streets in order to do this, um, or had had this idea. And the answer to him had been, oh, health and safety. I don't know about that. It'll be really difficult. You know, there'll be too many people who want to use it, public toilets that don't exist and so on and so on. There have been all the reasons not to. And after we elect, were elected, he came back and asked us. And our response was, um, great, brilliant. Let's make this happen. And I'm sure we can fund some, you know, some of the initial gazebos so that, um, you know, that, so that traders have got some cover. Um and, you know, so we didn't think about all the, the 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 reasons not. We thought, well, let's work them out uh, later. Um, and now, wherever we are, seven years later, every first Sunday of the month in Froome, there's a massive market that closes the whole middle of the town. 10,000 people come to Froome um, on that day. Millions of pounds of money have come into Froome um, over the years. Um, that's a curated market. So there's a lot of, there are bands, there are, um, there's an area where children can play. Uh, there's there's money raised every time, uh, you know, as as you know, for a, a local charity. Although in this time, um, you know, on this Sunday it was for um, Ukraine. So so it's an attitudinal thing, really, that that allowed these um, these things to happen. And I think that spread more broadly than just the council. So so that general um, attitude of well, try it and see, or uh, you know, has spread beyond to businesses um as well so for instance recently there's a um a climbing wall come to Froome who had looked at other towns and and again had been it, it all became a bit too much and they hadn't had much help here i don't think a little bit of help from the town council to help them to to negotiate um you know and now there's a, a really fantastic climbing wall which is again is bringing people from all over the region who come to Froome spend their money um, I mean, they, they do their climbing and so on, but then they very probably go off and eat in a cafe or do other things. And that's part of what's helped keep Froome, um, you know, vibrant and, and, and thriving. It's really yeah interesting to see how, I guess, yeah, these small attitudinal changes can lead to uh, these larger changes. You know, in a way, like, I guess, like the, the council in itself is not really doing a lot to... Uh, we say to create these spaces, but just as uh, providing the initial energy and, or in some cases, maybe a little bit of uh, support to get things going. Like the allotment, I think, is an interesting one in a way to <laughs> like rid yourself of the responsibility. 
um, it's like a very different way of thinking about governance. Like I feel that conventionally maybe you want to hold on to that uh, authority and the power to control how it works. But it's interesting to say, well, no, we've got like citizens who are involved and are interested. And so we're going to empower them to, to have control over that decision-making process to be run by the people who are involved in it. Yeah. Who have the, who have the time and the skills and the experience, you know, and that's the, uh, so, so often. Um, so it's, it's much better uh, in so many ways, but you're right. This, it was a fundamental attempt to reposition the council. It says it's not the organization you have to come to in order to be told no. It's, it's one of a number of organizations that plays a particular role. I mean, it raises public money and so it has money and it has resources, it has staff, you know, and, um, and so on. So, so, so it, it, it can play a particularly interesting role, but, but often that role can be catalytic rather than actually having to do it. Mm. It does make me think a little bit as well about, um, you know, if I think about the neoliberal conception of government, like I feel like there is a strange crossover here in that uh, the idea of small government or like the government should just stand back and get out of the way. And in a way, this also seems like you are trying to make the role of government, well, not governance, but government a little bit less. But I'm just trying to think about uh, yeah, in what way do you think it's uh, different? Okay, so I don't think it's necessarily less. I mean, so we raised we raised the local taxes considerably when we first got in. So in percentage terms, by kind of forty five percent, and then regularly by 50, well over inflation, you know, much higher. But we did that in consultation with the people. If you see what I mean. So so we were it, in percentage terms. It sounds like a lot. But in, in actual terms, we might have been talking about, for most households, the tax, um, the tax is banded. So if you live in a smaller house or a, a less valuable house or you're uh, renting, you possibly won't pay any at all. And the bigger houses will pay more. So it's quite it's good in that sense, I think. But also, it um, uh, you know, we might have been that first one might have been two or three pounds a week. That that's all that the more we were asking. But also we explained to people or had the conversation. It's like. If you want this to happen, you have, or put another way, you have said you want this to happen. Um, you know, here, if you want to, if you want to do a little bit of it, it'll cost this much. If you want to do a middle bit of it, it'll cost this much. If you want to do all of it, it'll cost all of this much, you know. And the experience invariably was that people went for the, the whole lot. Um, and that's not just in Froome. So there are, because there are other towns now who've done similar things. And I'm thinking of one called uh, Fastly in Devon. They raised their tax the first time by 89% and they basically doubled the tax. But they'd carefully, they'd, they'd had that discussion with people and the people were perfectly happy to pay a bit more because it meant that at last they could reopen the public swimming pool. At last they could have somewhere for, uh, you know, the children to hang out in the park and so on. So I think it's a myth that, that um, people prefer low taxes. So we weren't about low, we weren't about getting, it's not quite the same as getting out of the way completely and um, a sort of completely neoliberal approach to, to it of, of, you know, reducing taxes to a minimum and then leaving it all to the people and actually there are way more staff in the ta- in the town council now loads more i don't know how many there are now, but there must be well over 20 i should think um whereas when we came in there were probably five you know so there's, so there's a lot more resources yeah that's really interesting i i mean because i guess yeah often yeah, the the threat of taxes um can be made to be quite intimidating but i suppose if you're 
in dialogue with people about how they're going to be spent and like what it means. Uh, it can be very well easy an easy sell in this case. So I know that in the uh, yeah, as you said, in the first uh, round of elections in 2014, you had ten independents uh, come in, uh, and this is now eight years later. And you said you were coming up to the fourth set of elections. And so I'm curious, did the uh, independence for firm stick? Absolutely. So the next election, the second one, um, which I was still part of the council then. So that was in the first one actually was 2011, and the second one was 2015. Um, the 2015 ones, um, to my surprise, really, every political party stood because um, I kind of thought that they would look at what had happened in Froome and go, whoa, this is really good. Let's not, you know, let's not stand at this level. Um, but they all stood. But from their point of view, that was actually a disadvantage in some ways because they split their own. They, they if you like, the opposition to independence for Froome split its vote. Um, so certainly the inclusion of UKIP, who are the far right um, uh um, party there were two or three places where they stood where i'm sure that that helped us significantly um because they they took some of the tory vote um and and there's definitely one place where the tory person would have got in um without that ukip uh, insertion anyway they all stood uh, but actually 17 all of we all got in so 17 um independents were elected in the second election and in the third um so uh yeah and then there's one this may um, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens um, again, because there wasn't there was very little opposition last time. So there was a lot of opposition the first time. And then the second time there was very little, um, which raises an interesting point um, in the sense that uh, I don't I mean, it kind of effectively means that the 17 people who are elected to stand as independents of Froome all get in, whether there's an election or not. And that's quite interesting i don't know what i don't quite know what we do about it um or i don't know quite what is done about it but maybe a, a, some sort of more rigorous um selection process or public selection process uh, might be good um you know so a, a kind of almost a parallel process by which Froome runs its own <laughs> its own system and we the people select the 17 who are going to stand and then the elections are kind of like irrelevant really because Either, either nobody stands against them or people do, but they're so, you know, they lose. Um, if that's one of the things, because independence of room is not a party, it has no structure. It has no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have any members. I mean, it's effectively a method of getting independence elected or individuals elected. And then it doesn't really exist between elections, which, which makes it, it's slightly. It needs a bit of work. That it's a bit of a. It's a bit of an evolving process as to as to where that might go. That's an interesting dilemma to be in, because like yeah, I can imagine at the start when you're maybe more in contrast to the establishment, and you've got a small group of people that you are all on the same page about how you're going to behave and all that. It's easier to to start up. But yeah, now you, if you're the only party running and you've not got like a selection process to think about, yeah, how you will now choose your independence if there is no one running against them. And yeah, it's almost like, yeah, I need to think of another, another system for selection. Um, but that's a absolutely resounding success to, to have seen, I guess, in the following elections to take over the council and essentially now have a uncontested uh, reign for this method of 
organizing local government. And so, yeah, I, I'm aware that there's also the broader movement of flat pack democracy. And so um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about that and how that's been spreading through the UK or the continent? Sure. Well, so that's that's really only um, so. So I was persuaded to write a book called Flat Pack Democracy, um, which which is uh, the well, I've written two now. The first one was um, was basically how to take power or our experience, what we did to take power, I guess, and what we initially did um, once we got in. Um, and then the second one is kind of what happened next. And then it, it also relates a bit to um, or talks a bit about other councils, because there was a, a, there have been. Um, about 10 other um, places that have uh, followed a similar kind of model or taken some things from what we've done um, quite early on. So they were in the, um, let's say, about 2015, 2016. So something like 10 of them. And then in 2021, we decided, or a group of us decided to really try and make this happen bigger, um, which then coincided with them. Um, uh, COVID, which in some ways was a help because it gave me lots of time to run meetings, but in other ways was definitely not because I mean we couldn't get out nearly as much as we hoped to, because we really wanted to try and support a lot of councils. In the end, we supported in a in a very hands-on way about I don't know sixty or seventy councils, of which about forty got some people elected, and about twenty, a bit less, about eighteen got um, you know uh, a majority or or or, a, um, or near enough. Um, of of independence, so there are a, you know a fairly significant group of councils running something similar to what we've um, done in Prum, and some of those some of the early ones have rather reverted back to being much more ordinary councils. Some of them haven't. Some of them are really nice and interesting and and radical in my view, like Bude in Cornwall, who've um, who uh, where they have a complete majority taking over from a very um, very conservative in the small c sense but very been there forever bunch of old men um council um and they have for instance of their four objectives or four ways that they're, they're going to work is that all decisions will be made with uh, the future with the lives of future generations um equal to those of the present which um i haven't found out i'm meeting them hopefully this weekend actually some of them i don't know yet how that's working but um but uh, you know that's a, that's a really interesting way to go uh, for a, actually quite a big council again the size of Froome really a little bit bigger, um, you know. So um, it, how's it taken off? In one sense, it hasn't. You know, I wrote a book which has sold a lot more copies than I ever thought it would, and many of those to other countries. So I have conversations with people in Canada and Australia and and places where because this this the basic challenge of getting proper representation or proper democracy neither of which words neither of which work incidentally in my view democracy or representation but anyway <laughs> the challenge of making something work better at a local level is pretty much the same wherever you go in the um in the western world i suppose or not just the western world but that's who i've who i've talked to so i've had uh, annabelle and i have been to denmark three times to um to talk with people there about the way that that their systems do and don't work, mainly because they have a national party um, called the Alternative, which ha which works with an ethos and a set of values in a very similar way um, to uh, to Independence of Room. So it was it was them that we went and, and met with. So you know, it's I think it's there as an interesting model. Um, there's definitely a, a absolutely definitely a need. Um, 
But uh, it's proven much more difficult to really get people to take up the challenge and, and to, to, to really take over and change things, I think, than I initially thought it would. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that sounds like it's still quite a lot of counsel just for the UK to, to change over or to have at least uh, some success with this. I think, yeah, local councils, it's interesting what you're saying about like they all sort of do their own uh thing or they all work slightly differently i think maybe one of the things that's interesting about the scale that local councils work at is you know they can all be quite different there's like all these little experiments with how people uh want to govern themselves but what you just said about the national party in denmark uh is something yeah i was actually really curious to get your thoughts on as to whether or not you think that this uh, form of organizing is more suitable for local politics or if it's something that you think has the potential to really work well as well at a regional or national level yeah so so i think it's definitely much more suitable for local uh where where it's been adopted or ideas have been adopted at, at higher levels it's not really taken off that the the political parties are usually so strong and so well organized and it's really hard to to um to get in on the act and people people are uh, I mean, very reasonably in many ways, people are kind of suspicious, if you like. That's what you're saying to them is, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, this is how we will work together as a group of people and we'll and we'll listen to you. But they have to kind of trust you. Um, now, I, the, in a sense, because you could just um, turn around and, and turn out to be a political party with a whole load of, uh, of other ideas. But I mean, uh, to me, that's so people find it really hard to, to kind of, I think, take that leap. But on the other hand, the, what they do at the moment is they believe uh, they read a manifesto of a political party um, and then they get they go with that. Um, and often that turns out to be farce as well. I mean, you know, once elected, the political party doesn't follow that manifesto. They introduce other things or they never carry them out. So so, um, uh, you know, the, the problem is that people tend to 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 go with a system that they know. And so. At high levels, it's really hard. And as I say, the political parties are really well organized. So when there was a, a version of, of, of what we did in Froome that, um, that happened in Bath, um, just near here. Um, and while the, you know, the independents could get two leaflets through the door with a small group of their friends, you know, to, to, to do that sort of thing. The Liberal Democrats, for, for instance, had 17 leaflets posted um, to people over the election, uh, posted or posted through doors through the election period. So you're up against a kind of barrage of, of system, of funded system. Um, and in a town or a small village or a smaller place, you can do that. Uh, you, can, you can walk around your bit easily enough. You can meet people. You can, uh, you know, people know you. So it works. Once you're into a larger populace um, and you've got a, a lot of, let's say you've got 10,000 leaflets to deliver, that's a lot, you know. You've either got to have significant financial backing, which you probably haven't got, um, you know, to pay someone to deliver things and, and get the message out. Um, or I don't know what. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a struggle. It hasn't worked, except in one or two places by luck where people have stood and then they've had, um, they've, become, they've been, um, they've been the two or three seats, which makes a difference. So they've been able to form a, um, a coalition. So they're not really, you see what I mean? So they're not really in power. They are, but only as part of a, a loose coalition, which in the examples I'm thinking of in both cases has actually collapsed later. So it's a short-lived um, victory. 
Mm. So it's not necessarily that you think this way of organizing wouldn't be suitable, but that just the logistics of trying to uh, say fight with uh, political parties at the national scale is much greater. Yeah. Um, yes, but also, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, the system is so entrenched. I was at a meeting the other night um, talking about um, kindness in politics. And we had a, a Zoom presence of a, a um, local Tory MP. And um, he was describing the House of Commons. I mean, he basically said, I, d- I don't think there should be too much kindness in politics. I think the purpose of the House of Commons is for two ideas to be fought over. You know, it's basically to have a fight to the death. And the, pe- and the people both, that means that you get all the ideas out there. You can really understand the two sides of the argument. And then the, 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 the people will see those ideas and then at later elections, they'll vote for whichever one they feel and um, put across the better ideas. So, but it, it was a nonsense to me, to be, to be honest, because what actually happens is that um, a whipped group of people, so, so a group of, um, in, this, in, in our current situation of conservatives, all have to make the same argument and vote the same way, whatever they think. Um, the opposition gets very little say anyway and always loses. So hang on, how does that work? You know, it doesn't work. But I think to insert yourself into that system, I mean, the nearest thing we have to an independent, I, I guess, is um, Caroline Lucas, the Green MP. You know, she's one Green MP representing 8 million voters. Or, you know, that's the number of people who voted Green. And she can't really do much. I mean, I think she does an amazing job, but but it's incredibly difficult and really has no no power at a, at a structural level. Yeah, I suppose uh, you really need to be getting into commanding majorities to make the kinds of uh, changes that you are talking about at the local level. Yeah. But I suppose maybe the the upshot of organizing or having all these local councils, uh, which may be more accessible to this, is softening people up to this way of organizing. Um, I was curious, though, as well to ask, because we're getting a little bit tight for time now, Um yeah, like maybe what some of the, the challenges you've seen in implementing these models are. Because I can imagine even in a case if you have a majority of people who've agreed to listen to each other and respect each other's time, uh, I still feel like a noisy or obtuse minority can do quite a lot to disrupt um, you know, a group of people wanting to work like that. I'm wondering if you've uh, had any experience with that. No, not really. It goes back to what I said before. Um... Uh, that 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 treated with respect and properly listened to. My experience was that people um, respond to that. So 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 no. I mean, I, um, again, I mentioned this the other night. There was a, a meeting we had where there was somebody who came, a member of the public who was who was very um, fiery and angry about something. And I was I was chairing that meeting, and I you know gave him gave him time to 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 make his main points. And um, but then I don't know. It, it was about. Yeah, after a couple of minutes, I was able to say to him, so look, do you, do you, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Uh, we've heard, I've heard, you know, we and, as, as a council and the public have heard you say that. Do you feel you've been listened to? And he, was, he said, yeah, I do. And he came back to later meetings. Um, and the same was true of, of councillors, I think, that, that if you felt you'd been listened to, you didn't have to go into that whole bit of, of um, confrontational anger. So long as you feel that, you know... It, uh, as long as you respected that, the, that ultimately there's going to be a vote and you may lose it, 
you see what I mean? More people may not have agreed with your side, but then as long as you've got the taken on board the fact that that's how it is, you did the best you could, you made your case, and now let's move on to the next thing. I suppose, um, I'm, yeah, I was curious, like, you know, I guess in the way that you may have factional politics inserted within this sort of politics, so like, did you find that from your experience, if you had the majority of 11 out of 17, but you had, I don't know, like four Tories or something, would they still all vote as a block? Or did you find that they softened up and uh, you changed a bit as well? Or yeah, how was that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I, okay. No, that was kind of worth, I mean, no, they never softened up. Um, that was weird. They always behaved as the opposition. So that we actually got to situations where one I can particularly think of, where we were saying, look, we want to vote to put up this bus shelter. It's paid for. The people who live nearby want it. Um, you know, so this, let's just vote on this. And the Tories voted against it. And I said at the time, so why did you vote against that? And the answer was, we're, we're the opposition, which to me just completely misunderstands the situation. Uh, I mean, it's just it was just taking a role um you know that uh that well that's what they felt they they were so um uh that's how they needed to behave but which is a nonsense in my view Jeez, yeah that's <laughs> that's kind of crazy you can say well we didn't waste money on this bus stop that people wanted um yeah well i feel like we're we're pretty close to the hour so i was just wondering if there were any other thoughts you have or any uh, final bits of advice that you'd like to give to anyone who would be thinking about uh, taking on the challenge of taking over local councils? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, uh, well, for me and for Froome, it's been incredibly worthwhile and for a number of other towns and, and, and smaller um, parishes around Britain. And I don't say that this is the only way to do things. And there are many places where there are, you know, good, competent councils who work well with their local community. But where you have a council which um, really isn't doing that, and particularly perhaps isn't listening to issues around climate change, the need to declare a climate emergency, to act on, um, uh, you know, on climate and environmental crisis in which we're in, then getting involved can definitely make a difference. And if, if you're able to get together enough of a group to potentially have a majority then you can really do stuff because what look like rules at the beginning largely turn out to be um, the way that things have always been done there are very few rules you can actually do almost anything you want to um, at, at a town and parish council given the enthusiasm and um, the will to do it so there's huge potential um, for a council to work with its, uh, you know, with it, with its community, and really make things happen in a way that they don't otherwise. So I would like to thank Peter once again for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this episode. I find it so inspiring to see what they've done. So I'm just going to quickly recap the episode. We began by talking about the town of Frome uh, and the story of how the independents uh, came into power. We talked a little bit about the contradiction between the idea of a group of independents versus the idea of a party. In the sense, with them, it was a agreement to a way of working based on listening and dialogue with each other and the public. So people were essentially voting for a different kind of politics. 
We talked about the changes they made to make politics less confrontational. We talked about how they informalized the processes, so going from rows of people in fancy dress speaking down to the public to a room with councillors interspersed within the crowd. We also talked about the example of the sports club and how they involve people in that, so meeting in the sports clubs and not in the town hall, and how that also connected different people with each other. We talked about the general attitudinal shift that the council went through, and so this went from being a mindset that was really no to a mindset of yes. We talked about the allotments as an example, as well as the market, which was organized. We talked about how the movement has spread, so we did talk about the 2021 campaign to spread flat-pack democracy to many different councils, and so they had around 60 to 70 councils supported, and they have... Now 20, which have almost a majority of independents in power, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> um, and it's interesting that we mentioned they are all a little bit different. We talked a bit about the possibility of this kind of democratic process working at a national or regional level. And Peter mostly identified challenges with conventional politics and just how entrenched it is. Uh, although he didn't necessarily think that this uh, way of organizing would necessarily have any issues. And we did actually mention the National Party in Denmark, which is running on a similar platform. We also talked about some of the challenges in implementation as to noisy minorities or the uh, conventional politicians just continuing to act like conventional politicians. So I feel like this episode... It demonstrates some really powerful leverage points. So I've been talking about the leverage points of the framework we've uh, looked at. This is a powerful way of, demonstrates a different way of doing things. And this is a pioneering effort into seeing how we can do our politics differently. And what I think is really clever about this is that it's been able to take the political structure that already exists and change it quite radically without having to actually really legally change anything. So I think that the independent party, they've essentially changed the rules of how politics works. So, you know, they've destroyed factional politics and they haven't done that by changing any laws to outlaw it or ban it, but they've just gone on with this platform of getting voted in saying we're going to work differently. So I think this is a really clever way of changing the rules without actually changing the rules. And so you know, as, a, um, as a leverage point, that is actually quite a high one, is the ability to change the rules uh, based on yeah a totally different way of working with people. And this also makes me think about uh, what we talked about with Ruth a few episodes back in the anarchism episode about anarchizing institutions. And it, I don't think this is an explicitly anarchist way of organizing, and it's probably not, uh, in, well, it's definitely not entirely horizontal, but it's certainly a step towards more citizen participation and breaking down those hierarchies between those people who are in, you know, quote-unquote, in power, as opposed to those who are not. And so changing that role from being someone with power over to someone who has power with the people... I think as well, uh, calling back to the episode we just did with Anthea, which she mentioned uh, with 
changes in complex systems as it being often these little evolutionary experiments all happening at the same time. And I feel like this, what's going on with the local councils here is a really good example of this kind of change. I mean, you know, making big changes to national politics is probably very difficult, but tinkering with lots of different ways of doing things at the local level, which is not just easier to get involved in and to you know, quote unquote take over, but it allows people to do things differently and really find out like what, what works and what doesn't. And so I think that this is a really, you know, interesting opportunity to get involved and to experiment with doing things differently. And maybe at the moment, it's not something working on a really big scale, but perhaps it lays a, a foundation for something in the future that could go a bit bigger when we've had some experience with this other way of organizing. So I think that will be it for me today. Uh, I think the next episode we will probably, I haven't lined up a guest yet, but I've been meaning to do an episode that's actually about systems change. I was hoping to get a guest to talk about it, and I had organized someone quite some time back, but it fell through, and so I was thinking maybe I will record that episode, but if I find someone else to interview, I may do that instead. So the next episode will either be about systems change and systems thinking to help contextualize what, what the whole show is about, or it will be a guest. But that will be all for me this week. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe or rate it. That really helps people find it or find the show. Uh, thank you to all the people who have already done so. And I will see you here next time. The introduction music is Reverie by Ghost, and the other music is by Connor Sampson and Oliver Wheelerhand.